for those who are joining us in this service and those who might be listening outside of these walls, we invite you to join us for our Sunday morning service at the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message on being pure in heart and seeing God. I invite you to join me in Matthew chapter number 5. You'll find our passage there, and I would like to read one more time the Beatitudes section of the Sermon on the Mount as we continue our studies here. Picking up right where we left off before, for those who were with us, for those who are just joining us, I think you'll find it easy to pick up where we are now, looking at what Jesus has said. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, that is Jesus, went up into a mountain in the region of Galilee. When he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Read verse 8 out loud with me if you would. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Lord, may we hear your words today. May the Holy Spirit have freedom and liberty to work in our life. May the word of God have free course. May nothing hinder that which you would do and challenge us from your word, Lord. This is a thought today on being pure in heart, that if we're not careful to come to this humbly, we'll surely walk away saying, that's too much for me to reach. That's too hard to accomplish. I, I just I can't do it. There's none that can. Or on the other hand, we'll walk away from this verse as a self-righteous Pharisee and say, check, and yet in your eyes, Lord, You'll see right through us. May we not be deceiving ourselves. But may we be humble before you. And honestly ask. Is there any area of uncleanness. Any area, area of impurity. In my heart. Or is it completely and truly undivided for you. Is there anything else that's vying. And actually winning your attention in my life. Lord I pray that you'll give us eyes to see. And ears to hear what the spirit would say to the church. And I'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. There's a phrase that D.L. Moody used to say, and I begin with this on purpose because of the backdrop of the Sermon on the Mount and what I believe Jesus is confronting here as he begins to give his introduction to this entire sermon that will span Matthew 5, 6, and 7. D.L. Moody used to say this, a great phrase. Maybe you want to write it down in the margin somewhere. Uh, hang on to this. He said, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. If I take care of my character, 
My reputation will take care of itself. Now, Pastor, why do you begin with that statement, that quote from D.L. Moody? Because at the backdrop of what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount here, blessed are the pure in heart, keep in mind, the disciples are there with him, and he's teaching them. But there are also multitudes that are within earshot. Now, if he's up in the region of Galilee, undoubtedly, maybe there's not as many Pharisees up there as we like to think there would be if he was down in Judea. But I guarantee you, there are some that are up in this area, and they are listening intently to what is coming out of Jesus' mouth. And this phrase, blessed are the pure in heart, will resonate into chapter 6 and chapter 7. So remember, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in particular, are the introduction to Jesus' sermon. He is setting the stage to where he will go in his message. If it's a good introduction, that's what good introductions do, right? So he's telling, uh, he's telling his disciples, this is what we're going to talk about here in the, next, in the next time that we're teaching. Who recalls chapter 6 and how that opens? Really, chapter 5, through there, he talks about the law and different things in nature. You've heard that it had been said of old time, uh, thou shalt. And then he goes into that and elaborates and expounds on the law and gives a better understanding that it's the, it's the spirit of the law, not so much the letter that God is concerned with. Is God concerned about the letter of the law? Is he? He is, or he wouldn't have written it down for us. Now, that was a trick question. I'm sorry. I got some beyond it. But what is he more concerned about? That's a, that's a legitimate question. Can we just clean it up on the outside and everything be okay with God? Sadly, there are some people in this day that are living exactly like that. In fact, they have uh, studied you know, the law so much and they're masters of the law that they've even gone beyond that and expounded on it themselves and Rabbi so-and-so has written this down, and, and they've put together things that, that, uh, that, that would be written that they would say, okay, if you're going to be a righteous person in God's eyes, then you need to do this, you, you need to do that. And they have a whole big writing. Um, Jesus is going to confront this head on. The Midrash. A section of that is rule after rule after rule. Very, very cumbersome, and we've talked about that in, in other times. I won't belabor the point here. You, you understand where I'm going with this, right? I mean, just ridiculous, some of the things, some of the rules that they had to keep in order to be spiritual. If you want the New Testament illustrations of that, I would go back to our time at, at the Pool of Bethesda with Jesus. When he healed that lame man by the pool there, he said, Arise, take up thy bed and walk. He just violated all their traditions because... Oh, it was the Sabbath. We don't do that on the Sabbath and be spiritual people. Uh, that's my glorified interpretation of it. But Jesus knew that's what was in their heart. Even back here, we see the, the seed form of that in his very first sermon. This is masterful, is it not? This shows me Jesus truly is the Son of God. He is omniscient, and he has everything in purview in mind. He knows exactly why he came, why he left heaven, why he was born in a manger, why he was in Galilee of all places on this globe, why God at that time had him come for due time for redemption. By the time you get to Luke chapter 9 in his ministry, once he goes up to Mount Hermon, he steadfastly sets his face to go to Jerusalem for one purpose, to die for the sins of the world, that he might redeem many. 
All who would believe on Him can find righteousness through God's righteousness, not self-righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. If I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. Thank you, D.L. Moody, because those are wise words. Why is that? Why do we need to consider that? Because think about how the how the religious leaders of Jesus' day had really flipped that on its head. They were so concerned about taking care of their reputation that it didn't matter deep down inside what their character truly looked like. The illustration for that would be the publican and the sinner. Jesus taught. These two men came to the temple to pray. You remember the story? One a Pharisee, one a publican. The Pharisee, self-righteous as he was, stood up in the midst of that in prayer. Okay, he's praying, but I don't know if his prayer really got above the roof of that temple. He lifts up his hands, and you know, he's thinking, I can come before God really almost arrogantly because of how he cleaned up the outside. And if you're like me, you want to vomit when you hear his words, don't you? I mean, they just they make you sick to your stomach to think that someone could arrive at this place in their life to look at someone else that, yes, okay, granted. We do the same thing as Americans. How many of you have heard uh, heard a joke about the IRS? Nobody. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> Publicans in that day, they really were looked at as traitors to Israel. Now that puts that puts a contextual understanding behind it. Think about that. What if someone was in our midst that it was proven they were a Benedict Arnold? I mean, what if you know, there was a real traitor in our midst. And we're going to pray. I think that would give us more of a sense of what this Pharisee would be thinking when he comes before God. So before we just throw stones at him, let's, let's try to understand how he arrived at where he did to have this kind of thinking. He's thinking, I'm okay with God because I've kept all the rules and the traditions. But he's wandered. He's drifted even in that. And he says, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. Like this traitor to Israel. Like this, you know, he's coming at like God's on his side on this. That God would say the same thing that he is about this publican. But what he can't see is the heart. And God sees the heart. And Jesus said out of the two men, the, the, the Pharisee that comes self-righteously, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not as other men, as this publican, for I do this, and I do this, and I do this, with his hands, note that, all outwardly. This is how I please you, this is how I keep, keep everything in, in line. And the publican, on the other hand, knows deep down inside how God sees his heart. And I think that he has a spirit about him like Zacchaeus would have when he said, Lord, you've got to come to my house today. Zacchaeus was a publican too. But he had repentance, Zacchaeus did, because you see that in his actions. He was so broken over what he had taken from everybody and how everyone looked at him. He knew that he had done wrong. And he wanted to restore fourfold to anybody that he had harmed. That's a picture of repentance. Now, this publican comes and he can't even lift up his eyes toward heaven. He's so, so uh, burdened with his shame and his guilt. And he says... Lord, he's smiting his breast is how the, the gospel describes it. This is a sign of great remorse. And this is hitting this man at home, right where he lives. 
And he says, Lord, be merciful. I have no grounds to stand before you. The only thing I can plead with for is mercy. Mercy. Please withhold from me that which I deserve. Grace goes hand in hand with that as we looked at before. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So did the publican obtain mercy that day? Jesus said out of the two that would go home, which one went home right that day? Not the self-righteous Pharisee. The publican did because of humility. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. These words, I don't think we could ever exhaust them. I've thought about them. I've prayed over them. I've heard great messages preached on this verse before that have changed my life. I remember some years ago, we had evangelist Mike Patterson. He came and it was a Sunday night service. You know, I like those little small, quaint services. They're so special to me sometimes. In this service, Brother Mike Patterson came and he preached on this verse. And it was convicting. It was, the Lord did something in my heart that life. And through that service, we had a young man that came and he trusted Christ that night. I, I remember talking with him after the service because the Word of God got a hold of him. And he knew his heart was not pure before God. And he wanted to know that. And I got the privilege of sitting in the back of that room and leading him to Christ and watching his sins just get washed away. And, and I can take you right to the geographical, lo- geographical location where that happened. But you know what? There was a transaction that occurred in heaven that night that that man walked away pure in heart. And he saw God. And from that day forward... God was with him and helped him. He still had challenges. He still had struggles like we all do. But he got gloriously saved that night. And the burden was rolled away. Now this is not a salvation verse. If you can help someone understand they need Jesus through this, by all means do that. I'm not saying don't use it in your witnessing. Please do. But don't misunderstand. Jesus has already laid the groundwork for who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. It's the poor in spirit, those who are destitute before God, those that are so broken, they're mourning over sin. Who is Jesus referring to? Who is he teaching? Disciples who he has already called and they have given their life and said, Lord, we believe and we're going to follow you. You have the words of eternal life. They've already made that decision. So this verse really is for a believer. When Jesus gives it, blessed are the pure in heart. Don't get caught up in this double-mindedness. Let's look at the verse just a little bit at a time here with what time remains. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Heart comes from cardia. We get our English words cardiac and, and other words of the same nature from it. But the heart is more than just the the organ of the circulatory system that that circulates the blood through the body. We understand that. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. But just for sake of looking at what's here, Jesus said, blessed are the pure where? In heart. A heart, when Jesus references the heart to this audience, they're thinking that it's the center of who a person is. That's their understanding. The heart is who you are on the inside. And Jesus is going to expound on this later in his ministry when he teaches out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And James tells us that if you have a a fountain, it can't bring forth bitter water and sweet water at the same time. Either it's bitter or it's sweet. You get it from the source. So Jesus is driving at the very source of who you are inside. 
not just outside. James also is a magnificent book to study. And when we look at this phrase, blessed are the pure in heart, I would say that James would put it like this, be not double-minded, double sukos, double-souled, if you will. And James tells us that if we're double-minded, we shouldn't expect to get anything from God if we pray. If we lack wisdom, we can ask Him. He gives liberally, He gives freely. But we've got to ask in faith, nothing wavering. Because see, that wavereth is like a, a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he should, he should receive anything from God. So if we're going to be pure, now I don't want to do a disservice to the word pure because it's thinking probably exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> it's not impure. If you're going to be pure deep down inside, let me remind you of a verse in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 10. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. And Paul tells us, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. He tells us later in that chapter, Romans 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How are you going to be pure in heart? So if you're not careful in approaching this, you will walk away from this saying that Jesus set a standard I could never meet. You're right, but there's a caveat. You can't, in and of yourself, attain to this on your own. It will take complete and total dependence on a supernatural power to help you achieve this kind of purity in heart. And this is where the Pharisees and, and others who get involved in mechanical Christianity miss, miss the whole picture. Because they get wrapped up in all the rules, and they think, if I do this, if I do that, then I'm, I'm okay with God, and... And that's a dry place to live. That's a dry and thirsty spiritual journey. Let me tell you about a lady named Anna Mae Penica. As we move into this next thought about being pure in heart and seeing God. In 1982, the Los Angeles Times carried the story of Anna Mae Penica. She was a 62-year-old woman and she'd been blind from birth. Age 47, she married a man that she met in Braille class. And for the first 15 years of their marriage, he did the same for both of them until he completely lost his vision to retinitis pigmentosa. Mrs. Pinnica, she had never seen the green of spring. She'd never seen the blue of the winter sky. And yet, because she had grown up in a loving, supportive family, she never felt resentful about her handicap and was always exuded, she always exuded a remarkably cheerful spirit. Then, in October 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute of the University of California at Los Angeles performed surgery to remove the, the rare congenital cataracts from the lens of her left eye. And Mrs. Pinnacus saw for the first time ever. The newspaper account doesn't record her initial response, but it does tell that when she found, she found out everything was so much bigger and brighter than she'd ever imagined. While she immediately recognized her husband and others she, she had known well, other acquaintances, when she saw them, they were either taller or shorter 
than heavier, <laughs> that's a nice way to put it, skinnier than she had you know, pictured them in her mind. Since that day, Mrs. Pinnica has hardly been able to wait. Think about this now. Hardly been able to wait to wake up in the morning, splash her eyes with water, put on her glasses, and enjoy the changing morning light. How many of you have seen the Colorado changing morning light? I have. It's, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. And so this is what she got up for. And her vision was, was almost uh, 2030, good enough to pass a driver's test. Think how wonderful that must have been. I just, I can't even put words to it. The, the way that it would have made her feel to open her eyes and actually have vision. It's inexpressible. There are no words. You know, the kaleidoscope, where she was there in California, the kaleidoscope of a Pacific sunset, a tree just waving its branches, a bird in mid-flight, never having seen that before, watching watching the beauty of God's creation. That, friend, is a gift of physical sight, and that's wonderful. But can I tell you, there is an even greater sight that we can behold. And having the physical to compare to how it feels spiritually, I can't put words to describe what it's like when God shows up. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pastor, is that true every day of your life? Is it true every day of yours? It's not. There have been days where I haven't seen God because I've been mixed. The, the original word, pure, katharos, uh, we, get, we get words like uh, unmingled. It's used in, in, in other Greek cultures. Well, in the, in the Greek days, it's used for metals, like metalworking. And so when, when a metal is pure, it is unalloyed. You know what an alloyed metal is, right? Um, it would be like maybe we were... I thought about playing amoeba tag with our trailmen sometimes. If you know what amoeba are... So this would be, okay, imagine this with me. You get these little guys running around, and they're playing tag, and, uh, and it's amoeba tag. So, so one of the trailmen is picked to be it, and he runs up, and he tags one of the boys. The only way that they cannot be tagged, like base, is if they're holding on to the angle of somebody else who's holding on to the angle of somebody else who's holding on to the angle of somebody else who's not an amoeba. That's a hard place to be safe. But if they get tagged and they become part of the amoeba, then they have to join arms like this and chain link together until everybody's chained. Okay, so I use that as a silly illustration because we're talking about being unmixed, untainted, unalloyed. Metals join together and it's not the same as when you began. Now there's some benefits to that. We alloy metals for durability, for malleability, for different uh, characteristics we want to see in the metal for beauty, different things. So uh, alloy is not necessarily bad in and of itself, but if you're going to serve God, remember, this is, this is the nation of Israel under the rule of Rome. And Jesus, in, in a sense, many of them are looking to Him to see, is He the next Moses? 
Is he the one that's going to bring us out from under the yoke of Rome? John chapter 6, we see that they were even going to forcibly make him king if they could, and he escaped out of their midst because he had to go to Calvary first, and they didn't understand that. And so they're looking for who's going to bring them out from under Caesar. And Jesus, you know, I was thinking the other day when I was praying through this, can I go down through the list of the Beatitudes and find an attribute in the life of Moses in each one of these? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Was there ever a time in Moses' journey, in the life of Moses when he was pure, when he was uh, poor in spirit? I submit to you there was. <laughs> that time around the burning bush, I think he felt pretty poor. <laughs> Lord, I don't have anything to go get these people out of Egypt. If anybody's going to do it, you have to. I know we could talk about that and say that he went a little far in his poor in spirit. No, I can't do it. Then the Lord raised up Aaron to be his mouthpiece. I get it. Blessed are they that mourn. Was there ever a time in Moses' ministry when he mourned? Yes. How did he weep for the children of Israel and their sin against God? And just go down the list and think. Now, this is Jesus sitting on this mountain. And he's got Israel there with him. There's no lightning. There's no thunder. But I think some of them are wondering, is this, is this going to be that prophet that Moses said would come? Blessed are the pure in heart. The law that was given to Moses, that Israel broke, by the way. And yes, they did break that. They broke the Mosaic Covenant. And therefore, the Palestinian Covenant had to be implemented. And they were expelled from the land via judgment. One day, they're coming back and God's going to bring them. They're already back in the land as a state, but they have yet to, yet to experience all the promises that God's going to do through them through, through their conversion and their turning back to Him. That's all future, and I believe that's coming. But here they are on this mountainside. The very first law that God gave Moses on the top of that mountain down south in Israel, uh, down in, in, in Mount Sinai, before they came into the promised land, what was that first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They didn't keep that. They were double-hearted in their pursuit of idols. And that cost them the blessings of God in the land. Let that sink in, Christian. You, If you are a believer, you have said to the Lord, I believe you are the one. You are the Savior. You are the one that can wash my sins away. And I will live for you. I will follow you. If you have taken that step of faith and become his disciple, you have said, you're the one. You're the only. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I wonder if more Christians wouldn't see God in their life if they would become uncumbered with some of the things that have won their heart away from, from Jesus where they began where it all started. Are you with me? Things can come in and crowd out what God would do in our life. Now, I think that there's a promise here that you can see God here and now, yes, but the ultimate fulfillment is future. They shall see God. When you do a study on this, commentary after commentary, and not a few of them, uh, will point you to this scripture reading we had today. They'll point you to Psalm 24, and say that this is almost a direct reference to Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. You can compare plenty of other psalms. Psalm 15, 
But through Psalm 24, if Jesus is, is drawing our attention to Psalm 24, how did that psalm end? Well, it ended with the King of Glory's entrance. And He's coming. Who is this King of Glory? And we know there's a sense in which every eye shall see Him when He comes again. And I don't want to take away from that, but can I tell you, there's something special here for the one who will live their life with purity, unadulterated, putting Jesus first in everything, everything, in all of your pursuits, running it through Him, and making sure that all that you do is in alignment with His Word and His will, and saying, Lord, You have first place in my heart. Let me not waver. Let me not be mingled. Let me not be mixed. Jesus prayed that this would happen for you as a disciple in His high priestly prayer. He didn't pray that God would take you out of the world. He prayed that His disciples would be left in the world. But you know the phrase. You've heard it many times, I'm sure. We're to be in the world, not of the world. Now we're applying this to being mixed with worldliness. But can I tell you, you can also be blinded, note that, blinded by your own self-righteous religiousness. And you can get so caught up in the motions of doing Christianity, of, of what it is to follow Jesus, that you miss seeing Him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, just some things quickly about this beatitude, and I'm almost out of time. As we have with the other beatitudes, we looked that there's a requirement. What is the requirement for the blessing that attends this beatitude? What's the requirement? To be pure in heart. And I've laid the groundwork for you. Jesus is stressing this because of the Pharisees. What does it mean to be pure in heart? As we've talked, it's the center, it's the core of your very being. It's who you are. This is the fount from which everything else flows in your life. What does it mean to be pure? Lack of defilement. Un, unstained in your mind. How does that happen? Romans 12.2 Be renewed by the transforming of your mind. Through the Word of God. In my Christian journey as a, as a young believer, I remember coming to the Lord many times, having, having things in my past that I know tainted my, my ability to see God working in my life. And I'm being vulnerable to you. I know that I am, but I, I, I would assume that we don't live too far apart. Maybe you haven't worded it exactly like I have, but I've prayed to the Lord before. I need a renewal. Lord, you've got to you've got to wash. You've, you've got to give me a new mind on this. And can I tell you, he, he does. But only when you're willing and humble to come to His Word and let Him cleanse you. Now you're clean through the Word which I've spoken unto you. Jesus said. And there are times as a disciple. Remember, He washed their feet, and Peter said head to toe, and Jesus cautioned him, No, you don't need to be washed head to toe. Not the whole thing. Just your feet, Peter. Because why? Well, the application is. When we're in the world following Jesus, we're not of the world, but we're going to pick up some of that along the way. And this is why communion and, and fellowship and being in the Word and being in church when the doors are open and all of these things where you can get in the Word throughout the week, you can come and be with other believers that believe the Bible like you do, and it just it helps 
minimize that. And you can come to Jesus and claim his cleansing time and time again and be washed. You know, is it okay to just take one bath your whole life? I hope you say no to that. Please say no. You get the point I'm trying to make. It's a lack of defilement. You're unstained in your mind, in your, in your intellect, your emotion, and your will. This is your heart. You're unstained there. There's no hypocrisy. You don't, you don't wear a mask in front of everyone. What you see is what you get. And you're just a humble follower of Jesus. Bless you. Not double-minded. We're single-mindedly seeking our Savior, following in His footsteps. So let me give you seven tests. These are not original with me, but they're good. Seven tests to see if you're pure in heart. Number one, are you living in sin? Number two, do you delight in that sin? Number three, are you making provision for that sin? Number four, why are you serving God anyway? Are you serving for His glory? Or are you serving for your reputation and your recognition? Why are you following Him? Number five, do you breathe after purity? Is that your very life's breath? Number six, are you avoiding sin? Are you doing your very best to remove sin from your life? Anytime the Holy Spirit brings it to your, to your knowledge, are you quick to deal with that? Are you doing all you can to avoid sin? Doing your best to remove it. Number seven, and the last for this test, are you willing to let this blessed book search through you and in you? Not some church, not some cleric, not some governmental entity, not, not any of that nature. Are you willing to just you and God alone sit down with His Scripture, the Holy Scripture, and let it look completely through you? No corridors hidden, everything open. Are you willing to let it examine every ounce of who you are and will you do business with that are you or, or is there an area where you're like okay lord i'll give you this but this part over here maybe someday but not now are you willing to be searched by the scriptures when jesus was dealing with the pharisees and the religious leaders in john chapter 5 after he healed that lame man by the pool of bethesda he told them there was one place, there was one place that they could go to find eternal life, to find what they were looking for. And he told them this, he said, search the scriptures. For in them, ye think ye have eternal life. That means they were misunderstanding They didn't have it. They thought they did, but they didn't. They missed it because he went on to say, and they are they which testify of me. These men, in their blindness, were so self-righteous, thinking that, how can this man do this? He tells this man to break the Sabbath, and then he wants, in their mind, 
he had broken the Sabbath. But did he really break the Sabbath? No, he broke all the traditions they put around the Sabbath. He didn't comb his hair the right way. He didn't do the right thing. He didn't say the right words. He, no, he, he actually worked on the Sabbath because he picked up his bed and moved it. He was, it was moving day to them. And you might as well brought in the, the truck and, the, the, and everything and just pack the whole house up and move on. Move on on Saturday. God forbid. You actually move on Saturday. You know, the Sabbath is Saturday and it always will be Saturday. We worship on Sunday because it's the first day of the week. It's the eighth day, meaning new beginnings. And that's the day our Savior rose from the grave. And from day one after the resurrection, the saints have gathered and celebrated the fact that He is not here. He is risen, as He said, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection. But you see what they're caught in. He said, search the Scriptures. They were not willing to let Moses pierce through them because they were so hardened they couldn't see Jesus. You get that? Blessed are the pure in heart. Lord, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to set all of my preconceived ideas aside. I'm going to get honest. And even though it might be hard for me to swallow, I'm going to do the work of letting the Scriptures search through me. And whatever I find there, Lord, I'm going to say, yes, Lord. Even if I don't feel like it should be said yes, I'm going to say yes because it's Scripture and it's undefiled and it's holy and Jesus Christ is is harmless. He is the Savior. And boy, when we can see that and let the Scriptures search us with a purity of heart, we're going to be searched by the Scriptures. So that's a helpful test. Now let's look at the reward. What's the requirement? You've got to be pure in heart. What all does that mean? We've looked at that. The heart is who you are. Purity is undefiled, untainted, unstained in your devotion to God. Can you pass that test? What's the reward? You will see God. You will see Him. Remember Moses had even asked to see God. And he was only revealed the hundred parts. No man hath seen God at any time. How are you going to balance those kind of scriptures with Jesus saying, He shall see God? I mean, isn't this the pinnacle of religious accomplishment? How many have gone on a journey, some kind of spiritual, mystical journey, because they want to find whatever they're looking for? Sometimes I don't even know if they know what they're looking for. And they wind up with this experience, and they're looking for it. Some of them, maybe they find some kind of experience, and they claim that as a spiritual thing in their life, but seeing God, wouldn't this be like the pinnacle of it all? If you could climb Everest and get to the top and see the whole earth from there and the curvature of the earth and everything from that vantage point, better take some oxygen with you because there's no air up there. There was air, but there's no oxygen. Seeing God, this is the pinnacle of religious accomplishment. Moses, he asked and he was denied. How do, we, how do we see God's presence? If you go back to Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, chapter 24, uh, chapter 34, we won't do it for sake of time today, you're saying, thanks pastor, I appreciate that, I'll go read it. You better read it. Okay, Go back to Sinai. Everybody saw God, but it was with varying degrees. And it is with varying degrees we'll be able to see God. 
I believe there's a, there's a promise for here and now that we'll see him working, we'll see him moving. But one day, as old Fanny Crosby wrote, I shall see him face to face. One day, faith will become sight. And what Moses was even denied, we're going to get the privilege. Remember, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Maybe this is what Peter and James and John experienced a little bit of when Jesus pulled back that veil of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they said, oh, we got to build some altars here. Jesus said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Fellowship. Rejoicing. You're going to know the peace of God that passes understanding. This is what has been called the, the beatific vision. What is this? A vision of the Son of God, perhaps. You can argue for that, and I'll go with you. But I would submit it's even more than that. This would be a vision of the Father, not just the Son. A vision of God the Father. And this isn't with physical eyes, mind you, but this is with the mind, this is with the soul, this is with the understanding. Where are you to be pure in heart? I answered it for you. Where are you to be pure? Let me say it right. You're supposed to be pure in your heart. The center of who you are. Where are you going to see God? In your mind. In your emotion. In your will. You will behold Him. And you'll see the Father. When we had our first child together, my wife and I, uh, I, I remember praying, Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing. None of you have ever been there. <laughs> you got this all figured out. I was beside myself. I thought back to my, you know, the earthly uh, pictures I had of what a father was, and well, some of them were pretty lacking. I love, I love my dad, so I don't want to, I want to make you think that I don't. I love him dearly, and and I pray for him every day, and I, I just, I'm so thankful for him. But there's some ways in which he was not a good picture of my heavenly father. Now, my granddad, he had his shortcomings too, and, and maybe I could fall back a little bit on that, but I had no clue what I was doing. Lord, I do not know how to be a father to these children. And I remember asking him, Lord, if I can just give them a glimpse of who you are, let me be an earthly representative of you in heaven to them. Have I always measured up to that? Ask them. They'll tell you no. They'll be the first to tell you. But have I driven for it? Has it been my motivation to keep me coming back, to keep me in check and say, constantly in my mind when I'm having to deal with disciplinary issues or different things that come up or, or, or trying to teach and mold and, and all these things, I keep coming back to how would my Heavenly Father, how did my Heavenly Father do it for me? Even when all earthly resources were exhausted, my Heavenly Father never let me down. He never failed me. And so I go to that and I can't, I can't reach it, but I think God looks down like He does when you try to be pure in heart, when you live for the Lord. And like we talked about when we began this journey, as a parent that gets to see their child walk for the first time, they'll fall, they'll fall, but it thrills that parent's heart to see them take those steps because they're trying. And they encourage them, don't give up. So are you going to be able to be pure in every regard of sinless perfection when it comes to this? God doesn't expect that. He knows you're framed. You are but dust. But a just man falleth seven times and riseth again. And God's saying, keep going. Keep going. You can do it. And one day you'll be glorified and sin will have no part whatsoever. And friend, you will see God in all His glory, in all His fullness. And when the angels and the elders 
You'll bow down before him and say, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is the vision of the Father. In your mind, in your soul, with your understanding. You're going to see him by serving him. And what a blessed picture. What a blessed picture. These foundation stones. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. There's two kinds of religion. And I close with this. Basically two kinds. One writer put it this way. He said, religion of human achievement. And the religion of divine accomplishment. Two religions. Carrie Schmidt wrote a book entitled Done. And he spells this idea out in that, in that little pamphlet if you've ever read that. There is the religion of human achievement. And that's the self-righteousness that Jesus is confronting. But then there's the religion of divine accomplishment that says Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Which one? Which camp are you in today? Are you trying to please God and, and trying to maintain your reputation and, and you're more concerned about that and what other people think and, and all those things that go with it? Or are you on the inside saying, God, you know me and I know me. And the best I know how, I want to live for you. Help me to always put Jesus first in everything. And God, I want to see you show up in my life. I want to see you show up in the lives of others. And when I get to the end of my race and I've run, Hopefully I'll be able to say with Paul, prayerfully I'll say, I've finished my course, I've fought a good fight, I've kept the faith. I want to be able to say that, and I want to hear those words well done. But when I get to the end of it all, I'm just going to say, Lord, I'm nothing but an unprofitable servant, just an unprofitable steward. Yours is everything. Where is that? Over here, there's a high bar that's set. And I guarantee you, it's a long journey, and you'll never reach that bar You'll always be coming back and finding yourself falling short. But over here, the bar's already been met. And there's liberty. And there's grace. Not license to do whatever you want. No. Don't take it that way. God has freed you and given you boundaries within His Word to say, now go and flourish and thrive and be who you are to be as I mold you into the image of Christ Jesus. 